Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not book by They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am, streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! That's right, solidarity forever. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> We're all hot to trot because we've been down at the Marxist conference, haven't we, Kim? Yes. Yeah, that's right. And you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim. It's been a hot time down at the uh, – you might be celebrating Easter, but we're actually celebrating lots and lots of things down at the Marxist conference. Yes, but it is a bit cold, which I like as well, the weather. Yeah. It's autumn, finally. Yeah, isn't it Nice. It's really, really nice. And Mel- Melbourne does autumn really well. So for it to suddenly have been dipping into this awful sort of grimy heat is uh, a real disappointment. It is. I think that there's a lot of like – we were talking about this – a lot of interstate people at Marxism. And I think that it just gets cold and windy around Marxism to perpetuate myths about Melbourne. That's what I think. <laughs> could be, could be. Well, we've got uh, we've got lots of things to uh, share with you this morning on with your Wheaties, politics with your Wheaties. Uh, first up, we're going to preempt Anzac. No, no, don't uh, run away. When... No, no, we're going to preempt it in the opposite way to the way they're preempting it. Yeah, that's right. Um, I'm, I had a chat with a character called uh, David Stevens. He's uh, a co-editor of a book called uh, The Honest History Book, and. Uh, when I said that to uh, someone here at 3CR, they laughed and, and curled their lip and said, when is history ever honest? It's an oxymoron. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know, journalism ethics. I often get that laugh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, anyway. No, well, it's a very interesting book. Uh, the first part of it uh, uh, explodes some of the um, hyperbole of uh, Anzac, but uh, the second part is uh, about different uh, aspects of Australian history, white Australian history and black Australian history, that uh, if that's not an oxymoron, black Australian history. Anyway, uh, the uh, different ways one could define uh, Australian uh, uh, national spirit. Uh, mm-hmm. And that uh, so their, their, their job is to reduce the importance of Anzac in that definition and uh, cast around for things that are far more interesting or at least as important as uh, a military view of uh, a a national identity. So that was very interesting. So we'll have a chat with uh, David Stevens. Uh, That project came out of historians being really annoyed uh, by the... uh, Ideology? yeah that was the notion that anzac was the and military history is the only way that you can look at uh a, 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 you know it's almost uh, warmongering isn't it yeah an absolute 
defeat and stuff up invading someone else's country. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, well, there, there you go. You said it in much shorter words than I did. <laughs> that would be my history. <laughs> that would be your Sentence. history. Yeah, and all the rest of it are just blank pages. Um, anyway, that's first up. And later on, we're going to uh, talk to Donald Sutherland, who, uh, no, not the actor, but the uh, very important ex-chief uh, industrial officer for the AMWU. We're going to talk about the modern awards. I was so annoyed when uh, the business about uh, George, the uh, celebrity chef that wouldn't, uh, his uh, a management company talked about uh, a person complaining about the situation, uh, salary and conditions in 2015. And uh, the reason for why nothing changed was because, one, it was only one person who complained and two, you know, in the modern award, you have to uh, negotiate apparently, and that's the reason for why nothing was resolved. Go figure. Mm. Anyway, I said to Don, hey, Don, can you tell us tell us what this modern award means? Does it equal completely unfair industrial relations? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he said, okay, Annie, I'll talk to you about it. <laughs> so we're going to have leading questions. Yeah, so we'll talk to him. <laughs> and Kevin's going to be live to, uh, this week. This is the week that was because uh, – We've all been, everyone else at 3CR's run away and gone on holidays and it left him to have to put away his bedding slip and uh, his form guide and uh, talk to his life. So that's going to be it's a exciting. Treat. I think it's, yeah, I'm excited. He's a real person, not just a, a voice. <laughs> and a disembodied voice. voice. And after that, we're going to explore the... Uh, uh, Peter Dutton's decision, our uh, Minister for Immigration and all the rest of it, border control and whatever he is, um, a refusal to allow uh, of uh, Bessem Tamimi's Palestinian popular resistant activist from the West Bank, his visa, you know, sort of 24 hours before he was about to step on a plane to come to Marxist 2017. Because apparently what Bessem had to say was going to be just too much for the sensitive ears of the Australian population. Yes, might offend some people in the community. Yes. Um, if he was saying racist things, they would have welcomed him. Yeah, apparently. Well, Come join our campaign to get rid of 18C. Yeah, Netanyahu was given a red carpet treatment. Mm. Anyway, by the by, we're, we're going to talk to an English commentator, uh, Alan Hart. He's, uh, um, he's actually a very uh, – he's a former ITN and BBC propaganda foreign correspondent and he's written a large uh, uh, three-volume book – to dispel the myth that uh, uh, what's going on in Israel is reasonable and that uh, Zionism, and he he argues that Zionism is potentially the uh, worst bedfellow for uh, Judaism that they could possibly have come up with. But anyway, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim. Marxism 2017, Australia's biggest left-wing conference. International guests, over 100 sessions. Easter weekend, April 13th to 16th. Victorian College of the Arts. Special guest speakers from the front line against Trump. Black Lives Matter activists, Hayley Pesson and Kuri Peterson-Smith. Palestinian freedom fighter, Besson Tamim. On the 100th anniversary of the Russian Revolution, Marxism 2017. Radical Reels, film festival, art exhibitions, book launches and other cultural events. 
Marks is in 2017. Easter weekend, April 13th to 16th, Victorian College of the Arts. Visit marxismconference.org to secure your tickets. Marxism 2017, a 3CR supporter. Actually, it's, uh, I was telling somebody that I was going to be talking to someone who has written a book or edited a book called uh, The Book of Honest Histories, and they said cynically to me... The Honest History Book. The, the Honest History Book. the question is going to be. Yeah, that's right. How can history be honest? Ah, uh, well, yeah. Well, do you want me to start on that? Yeah, go on. Start on that. Uh, people have said, oh, does this mean you're saying every other history is dishonest and so on? First of all, it's, the title is the, it's the book of the website, first of all. But essentially, a fellow called E.H. Carr, ages ago, um, historian said, history means interpretation. So we're basically saying all history is interpretation. Honest history is simply interpretation robustly based on evidence. So you can go from... Uh, Abraham Lincoln's a good, a good example. There are, there are um, arguments, respectable arguments, that Abraham Lincoln um, started, did the Civil War to free the slaves respectable arguments that was basically about saving the union, all sorts of arguments in between. If they're supported by evidence, it's honest history. If it's not, if someone just says Abraham Lincoln was a Soviet spy, <laughs> you know, it's, it's dishonest and, and, and there, are, there are myths as well. So it's all to do with, with the presence or otherwise of evidence. That's basically all it comes down to. It's not, we're not sort of trying to be clever to say that we're the only honest history book. Oh, no, 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 that's... Yeah, no, no. But obviously what you've been doing is uh, responding to the, uh, the, the, Anzac, the Anzac industry that has been yeah. developed. Yeah, I think we, we were careful from the beginning. Some people said, oh, we should, we should, when this all started, someone said, oh, we should just say to people, Anzac, get over it. And I said, I said no, we, we need to respect the, what Ken Inglis called the, um, the secular religion of Anzac, but we need to say, of course, Anzac, of course, war is important in our history, uh, particularly because not so much of what guys in Kharkiv did in war, but because of what war did to them and did to did to the country. But having done that, you then go on and say a lot of other things are are important in our history as well. And if we if we overcook um, the Anzac stuff and a thing we, we, we've called Anzacery, which is the kind of and Zachary, the extreme version of it. If you overcook it, you drive all the other worthwhile things out. And the book is essentially, as it says on the front cover, uh, Australia is more than Anzac and always has been. So we, we're trying to cover both sides and not 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 exclude the the people who want to um, treat Anzac as a religion. So the book is divided into two two parts. Yeah. The first part goes through uh, various uh, elements of uh, the Anzac. Uh, industry's interpretation or the present day interpretation of ANZAC uh, and actually teases out some of the misrepresentations by following evidence, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, for, we tried to construct it. It's called putting ANZAC in its place. And it's, it, it sounds a bit cheeky, but all we're saying is that to, to achieve this, this um, to make this argument that Australia is more than ANZAC and always has been, you basically have to downsize the ANZAC part and upsize the other part. And part of the downsizing is, for example, of ANZAC, for example, is in um, Chapter 2, where, where Douglas Newton makes it clear that World War I was a lot bigger thing than something that may or may not have been the birth of Australia. So we try to put, in Chapter 2, we try to put that war in context and, and make it a little bit less parochial 
Australians deal with war in a very parochial way. And in Chapter 3, we, we tell the story of the Armenians uh, from 1915 to 1918 and the contacts that Australia had with Armenians because people tend to, to block out the, the less, the less well-known stories. Well, they don't know the less well-known stories about war. And then going on, we, we, Chapter 4, Carolyn Holbrook um, really attacks the myth that Anzac has been uh, a kind of sacred thing for 100 years. It hasn't. It's gone up and down. Um, and um, among the others, um, Mark Dappen busts a myth in Chapter 6 about uh, the, uh, the alleged ill-treatment of uh, soldiers coming back from Vietnam. Um, myself and a Turkish academic, Butchin Kachik, have a, have a go at... Um, the famous Ataturk words, which begin those heroes that shed their blood, and there's no, there's no difference between the Johnnies and the Mehmets, our guys and uh, and the Turkish guys. Um, we show that that's essentially a myth um, that Ataturk never said or, or wrote those words, uh, and that that whole story is essentially being driven by um, requirements of Turkish politics. And in chapter nine, we try to distinguish between Anzakari, the over-the-top version and a sort of useful, quieter, more respectful, less euphemistic version uh, of Anzac, which might be useful in the future. Well, it's interesting to me because uh, I've always been interested in Australian history and uh, I don't come from that mainstream uh, Anglo-Saxon view of the world. So I've always found Anzac to be quite appalling considering there was plenty of messages coming from the people who actually fought in that war that they really did expect that this disgusting event wouldn't be repeated. And that was the big message. And I remember in the 80s, I literally remember when uh, breath was breathed back into the whole mawkish element of Anzac. It was in the 80s. And I can remember because I was in town when Anzac was on and I'd forgotten it was on. All these drunken men were there in uniforms and it was also the end of a fun run where all the people were getting sick. And I was thinking, oh, God, this is the last time this is going to happen. And then almost the next year they resurrected it. Yeah, I think that it's important to place it then because people tend to blame John Howard. Um, as we say in the book somewhere, um, the Anzac hare was was well well off and running down the track well before John Howard because Bob Hawke had a particular thing about Anzac. He sort of fell in love with some old diggers in the in the mid eighties, and that was partly why um, a lot of this Ataturk stuff um, sort of took off. Well, I think people should remember that one of Hawke's great skill, his greatest skill, has always been uh, his promotional uh, acumen. Yeah, and I think he genuinely is a very sentimental guy. And I was talking to a guy who was with him, with Hawke at um, uh, Gallipoli in 1990, and he said Hawke was in floods of tears half the time because he genuinely emoted about that um, that sort of thing. And I think our argument is, of course, be sentimental. I can't read letters that, that my uncles and great uncles wrote without bursting into tears. But move on. We're saying move on from that. Get get beyond that sentimental. Um, uh, remembrance and ask important questions about did they did they die in vain was it was it um, worth it and somewhere in the book we, we we quote an American academic who says we don't ask important questions about past wars because we're afraid of being disrespectful of the men and women who died 
but not asking those questions makes it more likely that we'll get dragged into another one because we've never really thought about the pros and cons of um, of wars. Well, one of the things, of course, you do point out in that section is that uh, that propagandising actually prepares the youth for uh, future wars. I think it. I think it does. That's one of the one of the most disturbing things that comes out of it when you go to a place like the War Memorial here in Canberra, less so in the, in the, in the shrines, I think, because they're smaller in the, the, the things in the States. But, but it does... Um, it's at, at, at least people say we, we don't glorify war. Well, only idiots glorify war. But, but because we do it so often and so sentimentally and so mawkishly, um, without asking questions, we kind of normalise it. We make it look as if it's part of being Australian, this sort of khaki strain, strain is part of being Australian, which really brings up the second part of the book, which we call Australia's, Australian Stories and Silences, which is about some of the things that we don't perhaps recognise sufficiently as, as influences um, in Australian history and the way we've, we've developed. Um, we have a chapter in there about the influence of, of um, uh, floods and fires and, and, and drought and another chapter about multiculturalism. And what you're talking about is actually how people can identify themselves as part of community. I wanted to ask you particularly about Paul Daly's... Sure, indeed, yeah. Paul Daly's story, which is, you know, people to, in people's minds, the death count for the First World War is something like uh, 61,000... Yeah, yeah. Well, in Paul Daly's account of the frontier wars, it's quite clear that the figure for Queensland is over that. Just Queensland is over that for the Indigenous population. And uh, the uh, incredible level of outrageous silence of the colonial uh, masters to this uh, dreadful event that stains this country. Well, people... People, it's, it's called the Frontier Wars, and, and, and the sort of traditional war people say, oh, it wasn't really a war, you know, well, partly it wasn't a war because... They were murders. Uh, they were murdered, but, but it's, it's a conflict. It's people fighting on country to defend their country uh, from 1788 onwards, as late as 1928 and possibly even later. And the stats he quotes in that, uh, based on some very um, detailed research by a couple of Queensland researchers, and you're right, if those numbers... Um, are right, and they say they're, they're doing it conservatively. More people were killed in those frontier wars uh, in Queensland alone than were killed in World War I. Uh, and, and people like Henry Reynolds, um, who's one of the endorsers of, of our book, he wrote a nice piece supporting the book, he, he makes the point that, that people haven't really come to grips with that. And, and even, even though at the time... Um, People as far back as Governor Macquarie in the 1820s were talking about a war against these black savages and all through the Queensland newspapers of the um, 1840s up to the end of the 19th century, there are references to war. These are our enemies. We need to um, take them out kind of stuff. So people at the time recognised it, but we've kind of suppressed it in a, in, in a way which is funny because people, people um, are always saying, lest we forget about deaths of of men and women uh, in wars overseas. But when you say, well, how about we start remembering deaths in wars in Australia? They say, oh, it's a long time ago. It wasn't my fault. You know, we shouldn't keep dragging that sort of stuff up. So there's a real hypocrisy about about those two things. And, and of course, that's 
a key statement in your premise in the website that you run as well as this book that uh, how you deal with history is actually a very uh, political uh, event, effectively. Joan Beaumont, who's been a great supporter of ours, who wrote the book Broken Nation about the impact of World War I uh, on Australia, um, she says that history isn't about the past, it's about the present. Um, It's essentially about um, people use history to to push particular agendas. I mean, we're doing that. We're, we're using it to push an agenda which suggests that, that we should uh, have a different attitude to war in the future and we should recognise many more parts of our history. But other people, like the Australian War Memorial, who used to say, and still, I think, do say, um, uh, every nation has its story. This is our story. This this story that we tell in the War Memorial is the Australian story. Yeah, I won't go into that building. I went into that building when I was a teenager and there was a box in there with scraps of things in it and said Hiroshima remains. It was the last time... I, that place is dead to me. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, 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 it, but it is, it is an attempt to continually, continually push the idea that the central part of Australian history is, is war... Um, and that has a has a current agenda. I mean, that's when, when people, when people, when Tony Abbott, um, a year when he was still prime minister, said um, of troops going off to Iraq, uh, the sons of Anzacs. It, that's that's seeking um, sort of tapping that that historical memory of Anzac and what Anzac meant to serve a current political agenda. Get support for probably an unpopular. Um, um, decision to send troops off to uh, to Iraq. So oh, well, you know, Iraq. it's that Paul Daly story of uh, the uh, point made about uh, a young man that uh, was actually the offspring of yeah. Aboriginal people who were massacred, who yeah. grows up and then actually joins the AIF and is actually, goes to Gallipoli, but when he comes home, he's treated with disdain and ends up homeless. Yeah, and I think there's a, there's a lot of those stories. And what's, what's interesting now, to, to the War Memorial's credit, I, I think it is trying to recognise. Um, it, it's doing two things. It's it's got an exhibition running at the moment about um, those Indigenous service people and how they weren't how they weren't well treated when they got back and the work they did as as soldiers. But it also has a has an interesting thing where it says they fought for country um, over centuries. Like, like essentially, it's saying. That they fought for country before the before when the white people came here, and then after the after the um, after federation, they put on the uniform and fought for the country which had dispossessed them in the past. And what how, mm. how sort of um, magnanimous? That how, how weird! How weird yeah, is it's, that? It's, it's a strange way of recognising. It's trying yeah. to recognise without going too much. You won't see in in that exhibition. Um, any descriptions of Cullen Laringo massacre or or Mulga Creek massacre or Coniston massacre, or well, the Butchers but Creek sort of massacre, allusions about um, well, you know, who were they fighting? If, if they were fighting before Federation, who were they fighting? Oh, maybe they were fighting us. Maybe they were fighting white guys. Why isn't there a bit more about that? And they're always kind of coy little allusions to it. So they're attempting to push it a bit further, but it's taking an awful long time. It's like trying to wake up uh, Sleeping Beauty or something. It is, it is, yeah. yeah. The, uh, uh, one, one of the other aspects of this second half, which I must say was most gripping to me, were things like Carmen Lawrence's uh, yeah. 
uh, analysis of the myth of egalitarianism and how it's possible to actually uh, do things to make your society more equal, but that people shirk it and that it they do it at their peril. Yeah, I think that's probably when we say silences or avoidances in that second half. That egalitarianism is the is the biggest one. I mean, the Prime Minister the other day said that Australia is renowned for its egalitarianism. Um, what Lawrence's chapter shows, and to an extent Stuart McIntyre's as well, is that is the the growing gap between our egalitarian values and what's actually happening in in terms of. Um, um, con- concentration, <coughs> excuse me, concentration of wealth and income in the, at the top, the top level. We're we, we're actually getting worse at that. Um, we're not as bad as some other OECD countries, but we're certainly, we're certainly. Um, oh, we're slipping down up. the greasy pole. It's quite clear, and this is data. This is data. Are, this is not we, imagined we are stuff. That way, and, and it's. I mean, the other aspect of Carmen's chapter that she brings out well is. We, we're not we're not unique in the world. Egalitarianism is a sort of universal human value. We think it's one of ours. I mean, she quotes some stuff from uh, material in Norway, which could have been written in Canberra. It's standard egalitarian values. Government speak um, in Norway. So uh, we're not. We tend to think we're we we have a parochial view of lots of these things, not just of war, but of other attributes which we regard as particularly ours. I mean, it's the same with uh, what Larissa Bernhard Berent is talking about. I mean, she is Aboriginal person and uh, uh, some of the things that she's got to say about how we deal with uh, uh, disparate voices is really how we should be synthesising our history. Yeah. She's got a lovely story in there about a fellow called William Dawes who was a, a, a... member of um, Arthur Phillips, Governor Phillips' first team, and a woman called Patrick an Indigenous woman, essentially how he tried to understand um, her culture and her way of doing things. And she ends up saying, we need to have, as you say, a synthesised um, uh, Australia, way of being Australian more than we have now, which actually relates back to Gwenda Tavan's chapter. She says that we, we, we have a reputation of being very welcoming of of um, people from overseas and people have come from 200 countries. But if you look closely at what it is p- people are being welcomed into, she says it's a, the condition is that, that you coming from one of these 200 countries make yourself look Anglo-Celtic. You, you kind of become invisible. You, you become... Um, it's not quite as bad as the old assimilation, which was get rid of all of your, all of your traits from, from your previous country, but it's still an understanding that she calls it Anglo-nativism, but it's a sort of Anglo-Celtic, um, old-fashioned, white, male-based uh, view of being Australian. That that's still the dominant view, which which you have to in some way accept um, before you're really um, before you are accepted. Yeah, it's immature, basically. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, there are a lot of things about about um, Australia which which are immature in that way, but but so many good things, and it's so frustrating that we. I've used the line in talking in speeches about the dominance of the sort of Anzac-centred um, thing. We're better than this. We're a much more interesting country than the one that the story is, uh, where the story is allegedly told at the War Memorial. And, and somewhere else in the book we also say, of course, it, you can regard it as a religion if you like, but it's not, it's not the established church. People, people can be atheist or agnostic about an Anzac-based view of Australia and they can just 
respect that, that view and, and go on with their lives. And, and that should be possible in a democratic country. But um, a couple of people have said that we're a lot, a lot um, more gung-ho on that ANZAC-based um, view in the last 25 years, even the last... Oh, it's quite de- de- I think it's quite deliberate. And this uh, yeah. stupid idea that's purported from the uh, top down, at uh, the top, that, uh, oh, it's what the Bogan wants, uh, the Bogans yeah. want, is an outrage. It's a bit like, uh, this is why we want reality TV, because that's what people want. I mean, and that's also the same reason for why we want a 24-hour... Uh, uh, economic site, you know, everybody, all shops open all the time. Uh, yeah. These are things that have been foisted upon people, not because people demanded it. Um, Alison uh, Brynowski is your co- yeah. yeah, is your co-editor. She yeah. wrote a piece at the end, which is quite illuminating to people about the nature of the reckless behaviour of our prime ministers recently in taking Australians to war without any consultation. Yeah. And she, her, her, her chapter is about what she describes as the tug of war between militarism and independence. And militarism is usually one, and it's been militarism um, at the essentially as 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 a payoff or as a as a premium on on the American alliance. And um, the key thing in that is, is, as she says, the lack of consultation. Um, about whether or not we go to war. And that, that it would make a difference. I mean, we still might end up in the same position going off to a war, but, but it, there would be certainly an improvement if, if some of these things were had, had to be justified and, and, and had to be debated in, in Parliament. And she points out a number of instances uh, where this hasn't happened. And it becomes even more important now when um, we've got a, a lunatic in the White House who... <laughs> I'm not. I'm sure not even um, President Putin understands his counterpart in Washington. Um, yeah, and well, it's pretty devious. I must um, say that that chapter made me quite angry. Thanks yeah. for talking to us, David. Uh, David Pleasure. Stephen, uh, can you uh, tell us the name of the book and yeah. uh, where they can find it? Yeah, it's it's the Honest History book. It's called exactly that. Very distinctive cover with those um, with that name in big letters on the front. It's published by New South. Um, it's readily available in bookshops, or if you go to the sort of promo um, post on the front of our website, it'll, it'll take you to um, where you can buy it um, uh, online. And there's also an ebook uh, version available through so, uh, Amazon. So, so tell us uh, the um, uh, the website? name of yeah your website, the project yeah, honest, that you guys have been working history, on. Honesthistory.net.au. Honesthistory one word. Dot net. Dot au. Thanks very much. Okay. Thanks, Annie. Bye. Bye bye. Hi, I'm. No, I didn't do testing. Oh, okay. Testing, <laughs> testing. Okay. Hi, I'm Susanna Espy. And I'm Ida. And you're listening to Three <laughs> C. And you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim. I've got Don. How are you, Don Sutherland? How are you this morning? Very good, Annie. How are you? And how are you, Kim? Good, thank you. Now, I, as, as I was telling the listeners, uh, I want to understand the modern awards and why is it possible to ensure that we have an unfair industrial relation because the modern awards have arrived? Well, uh, I don't think it's correct to say uh, that we have an unfair system because of modern awards. Uh, what we, we have an unfair system because of basically the outcome of... Um, uh, struggles between employers and workers, particularly through their unions, 
that have led to changes to the industrial laws since the early 1990s that has actually disturbed a well-established and fairer, not absolutely fair, but a fairer award system than the one that we have, and a fairer industrial relations system than the one we have now. Now, that doesn't mean that the previous century of industrial relations systems have been absolutely fair. They've had their own problems and unfairnesses in them from a worker's point of view. But I think it's really important that workers of the 21st century do understand what an award is, what their own award uh, is all about, and also uh, what the significance is of an award from a worker's point of view. So, so, John, I think the first question to address is fundamentally, uh, what is an award? Yeah, I was just going to say, what is an award? Tell us. Well, an award throughout history, but that both previous types of awards and now what are now called the modern awards, are legal have been and are legally enforceable documents that set out minimum standards and responsibilities for both workers and employers in regard to wages and conditions including hours of work and also other rights. So they, they're not, it's not as though an award is an absolutely perfect document from the point of view of the worker. It is the outcome of a dispute of some type between workers, uh, usually through their unions or throughout most of history, uh, most of industrial history in Australia because of unions, in dispute with their employers to establish new minimum standards in wages, hours of work and so on. You know, uh, I um, think when you talk about this, I, I went straight back to the peasant, what's called the Peasant Rebellion in England, uh, where the uh, uh, there was a massive uh, uh, conflagration of, uh, of uh, peasantry to, uh, uh, that uh, was, it was a massive, but in the end, the workers, the, le- the, the I think his name was Ball. He, he, he the le- the leader of that uh, rebellion, effectively uh, conceded to the. Uh, they went to Pali, um, and uh, instead of uh, the uh, uh, ruling class Paliing uh, uh, with good faith, they just gathered them up and hung them, basically. So we've come a long way, haven't we, in, rela- in relations between uh, workers and the uh, ruling class? Well, th- throughout the 20th century in Australia, the awards were the outcome of disputes of some type. And some of them were real industrial disputes involving uh, strikes and bans and so on to pursue the improvement that would eventually be codified in the award. Now, the particular thing about awards is that they establish minimum standards that reach beyond single employers and single workplaces. They stretch across whole industries, a whole industry or several industries, and they stretch and apply to workers across geographical boundaries also. And that's where they are very different, of course, with what we understand to be enterprise bargaining agreements or EBAs. So an award does something very special that is quite distinctive. Now, to fully understand the significance 
of the award, even in the 21st century, we do have to do what you've just been talking about, which is to go back in history a bit and get really fundamental, really basic. Let's imagine a time when there are no awards and no unions. In that time, at some point, the workers in a particular uh, employer will be dissatisfied with their wages and conditions and they will eventually come into dispute with their employer and at some point they will win an improvement, let's say, in their wages. They will raise their wages so that, that they are less poor than they previously were. The employer will then complain that they can't win in the competitive battle with their competitors that are located not far away or a long way away, it doesn't matter. So the workers in establishing less poverty for themselves run into the iron law of competition in the system. The employer who has conceded an improvement faces a competitive threat from the employers who haven't. Now, the workers then have to decide, do we give up what we've gained? And, of course, they say no to that. We don't want to do that. So they then go and organise and talk with the workers in the competitor to pursue the same thing and encourage them. And they're not stupid. They work it out that it's in their interest also to try and seek the same sort of, uh, uh, same sort of increase. Now, on that basis, we have an increase in the rate of pay spreading, and it spreads over time. The next problem for the workers, well, how do we not have that taken away, and how can we spread it even further? So this so has eventually- historically been a strategy that the um, working class has developed, and in Australia it leads to things like, from what I understand, where you have what might be called now pattern bargaining, where the strongest part of an industry will go out and win the award and you have solidarity and that helps spread the conditions across that industry. Is that correct? Well, you're you're absolutely on the right track, except that, that industrial action in support of pattern bargaining is not protected and is to tantamount to being prohibited in the Australian system. Yes, yeah, so that would so be that secondary boycotts? Workers, uh, no, 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 not just secondary boycotts. Other, include secondary boycotts. Yeah, yeah, because secondary other, boycotts... Uh, there are other, uh, other uh, penal powers that do operate to prevent patent bargaining being effective. But patent bargaining is a form of, uh, if I can use this expression, of taking wages and conditions out of competition. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, get, we'll go to that second uh, secondary uh, boycotts. Uh, there was a perfect example of that at a session at uh, Marxist yesterday. Uh, in South Australia, the uh, AMBOs, uh, at one stage, they only were employed from ni- uh, six to six, and then overnight, they were, uh, uh, the work was done by, it was voluntary, and uh, when they were striking for uh, uh, professionalisation of their industry, the uh, construction workers supported them in a strike because they said, "What if if any of our workers get hurt 
at, at between these hours, you mean we're not going to have anybody come and look after yes. us? And so they then did a secondary boycott. Is that correct? That that would be characterised as a secondary boycott. But we call is, it solidarity, uh, yeah. just to be clear. Uh, yeah, that's we call clear. it solidarity. <laughs> that's correct. That's correct. The purpose of the secondary boycott laws, which I think are in the Consumer and, and Consumer Protection Act, um, not in the Industrial Relations Act. In other words, the penal powers system that is in the Fair Work Act is also reproduced in the secondary boycott legislation in another statute, uh, the Consumer Protection Act, I think, is its common name. Uh, so, yes, now, historically, these penal powers have been around in different forms for centuries, and their purpose is to prevent workers from effectively bargaining to establish new common standards for all workers across all industries. And that's what's, that's the big thing. That's one of the very big things that's missing from our current regime. So when the ACQ leadership, as they are more and more talking about big changes to the Fair Work Act, one of the things that has to be in play is how do we change the Fair Work Act so that enables more award-based bargaining that can be effectively pursued by workers in common with each other across, uh, in patterns, if you like, or across industries. So who and brought in the Enterprise Bargaining Agreements? Paul Sorry. Keating and Hawke. Yes, and what the was their motivation? The, the beginning of the downgrading of the award as the basic instrument and the elevation of the silo-based enterprise agreement uh, started with the Keating government in 1993 and then was made considerably worse during the Howard years and especially the latter part of the Howard years with the so-called work choices legislation, which really did do great harm, the greatest harm, to the status of awards. But what went with that was sort of a loss of um, union memory or worker memory, if you like, about how important the struggle to protect and improve awards really is. Well, and what replaced that memory was this sort of idea that Enterprise bargaining was okay as a yeah, yeah. primary instrument. No, it's kind of interesting because I can remember thinking at the time, I was quite young then, and I was thinking that uh, basically the working class as a class, as a group, are, are better hearted than the boss class That's because they decided... Hi, I, I'm oh, a, I didn't do testing. Ooh, oh, okay. ooh. Get out of here. Um, they decided, I had the impression that people thought that uh, as a class that uh, we will concede for the EBAs because we're all at the table, we're all working together, we're going to make it a better country and everybody will get a share. And even if we have to relinquish some of our uh, power or our negotiating um Will we we will be co for the common good? Well, that was the rhetoric around the accord. Yeah, wasn't it? yeah, that was what the accord was about. And then, of course, the uh, boss class just turned around and bit them on the bum. Yeah. Well, 
I think it's important when we talk about the importance of awards that we don't idealise them as well. Mm. There were certainly serious problems with the award uh, with the uh, award system that, but workers generally had the opportunity. This is the re- I think the really important significance of awards is that the way in which they were improved or changed came from workers' initiatives themselves. And they could those worker initiatives could be organised primarily through unions, as they were, uh, uh, overwhelmingly. And that meant that workers themselves were uh, potentially the primary agents in establishing resistance against the trend to poverty, the downgrading of wages and conditions. And uh, not just against that, but proactively uh, establishing momentum for improvements. So if we take as a big example, the we still have the 38-hour week as the unit of working time. That was the product of worker originating as union-driven worker initiatives. That did not come about with employer uh, uh, support. It was resisted uh, uh, at the time, and it was the and it was through changes that the 38-hour hour week was established by worker collective action driven by the unions that enabled changes to the award that would set that minimum standard that stands today, and arguably needs to be reduced even further or changed in some way. So awards are not perfect uh, or the absolute solution, but they do enable solidarity uh, forms of worker collective action to defend what we have achieved and also uh, struggle for further improvements. Instead Instead of accepting a system based on enterprise agreement in which... Uh, the employer is able to use a, the competitive threat as an excuse to uh, downgrade uh, the, the claims or reject the claims that are put forward by workers to improve their lot. You know, uh, the um, if we go back to the modern award concept, what's happening now in a variety of workplaces is that uh, a lot of conditions and wages that have been fought for and won are now being the the clock's being reset, and uh, it's being reset downwards to this thing called the modern award. Yeah, and it, it doesn't have to be that way. So, look, it, in the twenty first century, the modern award system currently the only way in which awards can be changed is through a a review every four years. Now, uh, I believe quite correctly, the ACTU wants legislative change so that uh, an award can be changed uh, when the evidence can be produced and the public and the, and the new community feeling can be demonstrated that it should be, uh, should be changed. In yeah, it's words, pretty outrageous, isn't it? Wait. A four-year cycle. The, the four-year cycle has uh, like parliamentary a democracy. problem, but it's also potentially, I think... Um, I think the ACT is on the right track, but the changing of an award uh, these days is through that four-year process. That four-year process depends upon either the employers or the unions or, in some cases, the government 
seeking to get a change to the award and the commission then conducts the review to work out or inside that four-year process works tries to work out whether it could change it. Now, the, the pressure on penalty rates, the downward uh, pressure on penalty rates originated through the opportunity provided by this four-year review process. It was not a huge issue before the four-year review process. Uh, that, there, we, there we are faced with a defensive struggle for workers to try and protect the, the long-established standards on weekend penalty rates and other penalty rates as well. Uh, last, last time we talked, we referred to a proactive claim from unions in the four-year review process uh, to improve the status of casual workers, whereby a casual worker who after six months of employment as a casual or an adding up, if you like, of uh, periods of casual employment to six months' worth can be deemed to become permanent instead of having uh, to continue in their casual work. And they can elect if they don't want to be permanent, not to be. Now, that is a proactive claim that is very important that improves rights for workers. The thing about the award review is that uh, collective industrial action to support that claim and didn't demonstrate that there is a community expectation out there that the award should be improved is, in effect, prohibited in the current laws. Oh, that's outrageous. We'll have to finish... So that's the... Yeah, that's, that's the, the rub. <laughs> we, we, have to, we have to finish now, because... Yep. Uh, but, uh, yeah, you've, you've uh, left us on a, cl- a cliffhanger, I'll have to say. Well, there's a lot more to talk about there, and... Um, well, we will uh, the next time we... We haven't talked about how awards interact with enterprise agreements and all that sort of all stuff. All right, well... well uh, but maybe another time. Yeah, but yeah, definitely. But can I make a plea to everyone who listens to this who are workers, who, who work in a wage relationship, or if you know someone who is, for goodness sake, take make the effort. get a, Find out what your relevant award is. Start learning it. Work out its connection to your employment contract and your enterprise agreement, if you have one, and then start thinking about what needs to be done to uh, engage in a big struggle to improve our awards. Yeah, that's a good thing to do. Thanks, Don. Thanks very much, Kim. Thanks, Annie. Bye for now. What a great song. That's uh, Anticipation by Delta 5. And as I threatened on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim, that we've got Kevin live. Yeah, always an interesting comment, that live. You think, well, I, I hope so. Um, <laughs> you know, you're, you're kind oh, well, of, with John Clark dead. On, it's one of those comments, you know, live on stage, and you think, well, they're not going to wheel out a cadaver, for Christ's sake. Um, <laughs> it's like, it like, even happened at the rally last Sunday where they someone yelled out, can you hear me down the back from the microphone? And you think, well, if they can't, then they're going to answer anyway. <laughs> That's exactly um, right. Yeah. Anyway, I just thought, by the way, reflecting on the program, it's good to hear you discuss at Easter time the way that poor bloody employers are crucified by workers. It's good to hear it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Doing our bit. 
<laughs> All right. <laughs> Lovely to hear. Well, but a weak solidarity. Yeah, what? Yeah, yeah no, no. We're going to let oh, you go. Away. Okay, a weak solidarity, Bricky team, Mr. When What a pain in there, that bloody Christopher pain in there, Minister for Sounding Important. I bemoaned last week how satire was being made redundant, quoted that Banks person complaining that blaming coal for our energy crisis when the real culprit was renewable energy had taken the wind out of my sails. Well, bloody Christopher's outdone him. Interview Thursday, pushed for the government policy on affordable housing, Christopher made satire impossible. Our policy, he sounded very important, is we don't have a policy. (laughs) He really said it, we just can't compete with that. Then again, the man who has to sort all this affordable housing mess out, big economic guru Scuttlebem Morlash's son, who apparently has a regular spot on a Sydney commercial shock jocks program where he has no risk of being asked anything remotely difficult, upset the shock jock by doing an ABC interview, drawing an angry response from the shock jock Ray Loudly. I don't like being treated like an idiot, he exploded, and I thought... A bit of self-awareness wouldn't go astray. One report said Scuttlebeam's super plan to allow super as an answer to unaffordable housing was quashed by, quote, conservative members in the caring business class party room, leaving us with the worrying revelation that Scuttlebeam is not a conservative, leaving us with the even more worrying obvious thought about those they do consider conservative. The majority of that Christopher interview was about our attempts to achieve peace in evil Syria and evil North Korea. Pain in those in-depth analysis, and if you missed it, I'm sure you can imagine how informative it was, and if, like me, you heard it, we know. But on our quest for peace, big supremo Malcolm Tunnerbull would have had them trembling at the knees in the Kremlin when he demanded Russia abandon its support for the evil Syrian government, presumably to join True Blue Aussie bouncing along on the US of the UN of the US of the world's coattails, seeking peace in collaboration with those who want to overthrow the evil government, a tactic that has proven invaluable in surrounding countries in Iraq, Libya, Afghanistan, Afghanistan, where dropping the biggest non-nuclear bomb ever, the mother of all bombs. Interesting how great feminists like US Ob Supremo Donald Trample the Poor and the train killer establishment and the merchants of death become so maternal when it comes to naming caring, nurturing items like the biggest train killer bomb. But anyway, that mother of all should do wonders in the quest for peace. And the Guardian of World Peace, the US of, forced to fire off missiles this week because the Syrian government has no respect for civilians and the US of has such a pristine record of respect for civilians, it's, it's never heard even one. Although it has created a fair bit of collateral damage along the way in protecting them. What a humane, compassionate man, that Donald Trample the poor. Why, Donald all but cries at the deaths of little babies beautiful little babies. Horrible. Horrible. Although for some reason my mind runs to that infamous vision of the Vietnamese girl running through the streets alight with napalm. For I had a misguided idea the US of had something to do with that, but apparently not, because they would do nothing to hurt dear little children. And the chemical weapons that still render the earth poisonous, still affect the people's health, Agent Orange and all that, were obviously dropped by some rogue state the free world must bomb the proverbial out of to teach it the civilised world won't 
don't tolerate such inhumanity. Children alike with napalm, countrysides rendered useless and lethal. All lovers of peace must go to sleep every night content that no matter where the country, no matter where the threat, the US of has trained killer, killer ships brimming with peaceful kill, kill, kill merchants of death merchandise somewhere out there nearby all over the world. It, it's so comforting. Evil North Korea threatens the world with a few skyrockets that wouldn't even make it on Guy Fawkes night, while the US of sends an armada, in Donald's wise words, armada, an arsenal of trained killer toys for the boys, and Donald and all lovers of liberty, freedom and democracy like Malcolm tell us the kid with the skyrocket is the threat to world peace. And that uncontrollable socialist would-be big supremo little Billy Shorten ambition in turn echoed Malcolm's echoing of Donald's and the US Army Secretary for World State Rex Killamson's peace-loving sentiments and Donald and Rex and Malcolm and little Billy and the minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, Julie bash up the workers. Well, all of the caring business class and socialist parties assured us the US of missile strikes had been restrained, proportionate and appropriate, leaving us to ponder their definition of unrestrained and disproportionate and inappropriate. Week that was warning. If you are Syrian, for all of the above to care about you, to practice appropriate proportionate restraint in your interests, you must remain in Syria. Appropriate for those fleeing the bombs, the missiles, the train killing, the slaughter is concentration camps. In true Blue Aussie's case, on idyllic Pacific holiday islands guarded by worsened security, which receives trillions from the public purse to ensure restraint, as in restrained. Any wonder we have to slash basic services when these inconsiderate Syrians and other so-called refugees, so-called asylum seekers, put these selfish pressures on the public purse. And all these people, thousands of them marched on Sunday demanding the government bring these no proper papers, queue jumping illegal, note illegal boat people to live here, just like us. Speakers talked of the misery, the torture of concentration camps with no end in sight. And didn't the Minister for Concentration Camps raise a wire and sink the boats Peter Duffer put them in their place, which certainly wasn't blocking the streets on a miserable Sunday afternoon? The protesters were adding to, to the torture, adding to the torture. Pete showed he cared. How dare these long-haired, commie, greeny, wooden working in iron lots, many pro the dear baby Jesus or the prophet or Yahweh, make poor refugees suffer? Our ex-minister conceding by adding to the torture, although I'm sure he didn't realise it, because I'm not sure he realises too much at all, that they are tortured. And what a pity those watching the commercial telenewsers and reading our daily print media would have missed Pete's wise logic, because the mainstream media had so much on its plate, it just couldn't squeeze in thousands marching in support of people we must not care about. Stay home under the bombs, and we will send in even more bombs to protect you. And as the US of lords itself for dropping the mother of all bombs, it knows it must bomb the proverbial out of any rogue state, as determined by the lovers of liberty, freedom and democracy, rogue state which dares develop something as threatening as a Guy Fawkes skyrocket. 
One of those great respect for women lovers of liberty, freedom and Saudi Arabia plans to build a whole new entertainment city to cater for young Saudis' recreational and social needs. Isn't that delightful? And we can be sure one of the fun, fun, fun attractions will be the flogging stage for lashing any young woman who turns up without an appropriate male escort or who turns up with the wrong male escort or worse, with no male escort. They're such a lot of fun, aren't they, those Saudis? Don't the advertising gurus, though, get it spot on at times? Like, whoever concocted that so appropriate slogan for United Airlines, the friendly skies! (laughs) And there's nothing more friendly than dragging a passenger screaming down the aisle and throwing him off the plane. Okay, okay, in this case it was still on the ground, which explains the slogan. And anyway, he resisted. The friendly skies, big supremo, car toss him off, Munoz explained. We had no choice but to drag him screaming down the aisle and toss him off. Exactly. There would have been no hassle if he'd just got up and walked off when he won the get-off-or-else lottery, when they told him he had no right to a seat just because he booked a seat. And he unreasonably thought just because he booked a seat and handed his hard-earned over to the friendly skies that he had a right to a seat. Finally, we opened referring to unconscious satire doing us out of, but conscious satire suffered a tragic loss with the sudden death of John Clark, a wonderful comedian whose talent was based on a brilliant mind. John lived just behind 3CR and we'd often pass at the coffee lounge down the road and it was during an interview we did here a few years ago about political satire, I became even more aware of John beyond the comedian everyone saw and heard. His intelligence, his broad range of interests and knowledge, his love of the English language and John regularly recorded promos for our annual Radiothon. The tributes this week reflect the impact he made and the love and respect people had for him. A sad, sad loss. Good morning. We want to hear from you. Our station is all about serving the community and we want to know your thoughts, comments and ideas to help shape our future. We're currently asking listeners to take part in a short online survey that will help us get to know you better and understand what you want from your local radio service. The results of this survey will assist us in continuing to be the best possible station we can be in service of our valued community. To have your voice heard, head to our website and fill out the survey. Yes, fail John Clark. Yes, I all those, um, you know, all the stuff that Malcolm Turnbull was saying about how wonderful he was, I just kept <laughs> thinking, I wish John was here. What would he say? He'd be laughing his head off, yeah. The, just ridiculous. I, I, I had exactly that feeling when I saw his face on, his cheeky face on the front of the Australian. I just thought... Oh, this is there's something hugely hysterical about this. But anyway, by the by, except that he's dead. And and uh, as I was saying to somebody the other day, every time I wake up this uh, over the last few days, I thought I I think that I think oh John Clark's dead, and it's a terrible it's a terrible thing. Anyway, we've got to move on because that's what time does. It moves, and uh, I'll just have to leave that as a thought. Um, we. I, this weekend is the Marxist Conference 2017 and uh, one of the uh, things that was uh, most amazing about the lead-up to the uh, conference was the uh, uh, cancelling of the uh, visa. Yes, Basim Tamimi, there were these sort of, I assume, machinations going on. He had a visa, he didn't have a visa, they'd cancelled his visa. And so the government, you know, the great defenders 
of freedom of speech have basically cancelled his visa based on they're afraid of what he'll say. Yeah, well, we got contacted by uh, a person who's a mate of a man called Alan Hart. Now, Alan Hart is a former ITN and BBC propaganda uh-huh. That was a slip of the tongue, wasn't it? Uh, uh, Panorama foreign correspondent, and he covered wars and conflicts uh, around the world. Now, lately, he's been writing a uh, a three part, uh, you'd have to say, dissertation on the uh, wrongheadedness of Zionism, and uh, he uh, has an intimate connection to the. Uh, Middle Eastern wars. Uh, he, uh, in his bio, uh, it says he uh, has had friendships with arguably the two greatest opposites in all the human history, uh, Golda Meir, who was the mother of Israel, and Yasser Arafat, who is the father of Palestine. He uh, had something. He wanted to have uh, have his say regarding the issue of the. Uh, a cancelling of the visa, and then we went on to talk a bit more about other things. You might remember Alan as the person who was the producer of uh, Five Minutes to Midnight, which is uh, an extraordinary uh, uh, television uh, documentary about uh, the reality, everyday reality of global poverty. So he's a man with vision. Anyway, this is the chat I had with him last night. Yeah. Okay, so Alan, uh, I'm in Melbourne and we're in the midst of uh, Marxism 2017, the annual conference, and uh, Basim Tamimi was asked, he's a Palestinian uh, popular resistance activist from the West Bank, but the Australian government has said that he will cause dissent and therefore he can't have a visa. What's your view on this? Well, uh, Annie, I had to smile at the wording of the government statement cancelling Basam Tamimi's visa. As you say, they said that there was a risk that members of the public will react adversely to his presence. The unspeakable message of those words was, if we allow the visit to go ahead, the Zionist lobby and other supporters of Israel, right or wrong, will give us hell. Now, in reality, the Basam Tamimi affair tells us a lot about Zionism as well as the Australian government. Amir Haas summed it up very well in an article published in the Israeli newspaper Haaretz. As I imagine you know, Annie, Amir is one of Israel's two leading truth-telling journalists, the other being Gideon Levy. Well, in fact, she Amir came, she came her to... article with these words. She came to uh, Marxism 2016, so I got to speak to her. Yeah. Well, she, she concluded her article with these words. Official Israel and supporters of Israeli apartheid object to his uh, to his words in advance. If they were capable of challenging his testimony or conclusions, they would not react to prevent his visit. Their anger reveals weakness, which they try to cover up with intimidation, and the Australian government, for its own reasons, is afraid of them and has decided to act as Israel's subcontractor, unquote. Now, the flesh I would put on that bone is the following. Zionism cannot tolerate the truth in spoken or written form because it exposes irrefutably the fact that Zionism's version of history, the, the making and sustaining of the conflict in and over Palestine that became Israel, is a pack of propaganda lies. 
In other words, Annie, Zionism has no defense against the truth. And that's why it puts so much extraordinary and remarkable effort in preventing the truth being told. Now, at some point in one of our conversations, Annie, I, I would like the opportunity to summarize very, very briefly what I regard as Zionism's four biggest propaganda lies. Well, of course, you make a big distinction between Zionism and Judaism and that you maintain that actually Zionism is the worst enemy of the Judaist uh, uh, position. Yeah, well, I, I mean, uh, modern reformed Judaism is, is like most other uh, main religions. It has at its core a set of uh, moral values and ethical standards. Zionism has none of that. Um, Zionism really is the real enemy of the Jews, and I've written an epic book in three volumes explaining why that is so. I find it very interesting uh, reading about those uh, books, that you, the historical uh, uh, progress of Zionism through uh, Western ideological camps and how it actually, even though it's supported ardently by... Uh, people are by Lyndon Johnson, but not by Eisenhower, interestingly enough. Yeah, well, Eisenhower was the first one who, who tried to read the riot act to Israel, wasn't it? Um, I, my own view of American presidents uh, is not only that they're, they're subject to the power of the Zionist lobby, they're also frightened of something, and it was told to me by President Carter himself. Uh, way back in the early 1980s, I was the link man in a secret exploratory dialogue between Shimon Peres, Israel's opposition leader who was helping to become Prime Minister, and Yasser Arafat. And uh, Carter was being kept informed of this initiative. And when he left office, he, I got a message from him saying, um, uh, uh, President Carter would like to speak to you and bring your wife because Rosalind and I are a team. Well, when we... Um, sat down together, uh, I said to him, look, people think you lost your second term because you, um, you uh, were going to challenge the, uh, the Zionist lobby. And he said, no, 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 there was more to it than that. He said, you remember that the day after I announced the uh, joint initiative I was taking with the Soviet Union, I was visited by General Moshe Dayan, who was then the foreign ministry in the Narkin Begin government. And Carter said, uh, Diane said to him, Mr. President, never forget that my prime minister is a very dangerous man. If you push him too far, he could bomb the oil wells. My point in summary, Annie, is that it's not only the power of the Zionist lobby. American presidents are really very frightened of what Israel would do if pushed too far. So uh, are they just writing their own checkbook and their own history? Is everybody just going to have to sit back and watch the destruction of the Palestinians because the Zionist lobby requires us to? Well, I, I, I am very, very pessimistic about the future. Um, and I tell you, you know, there's all this bloody talk about a two-state solution. The two-state solution has long, long been dead, Annie. And I'll tell you another private conversation I had. It's in my book with Shimon Peres when I was doing my initiative with Arafat. This is 1980. 
And Perry said to me at the start of our initiative, I fear it's already too late uh, for peace on terms the Palestinians can accept. I said, what do you mean? And he said, Begin, Prime Minister Begin, knows exactly what he's doing. He's stuffing the West Bank with settlements because he knows that no Israeli Prime Minister is going down in history as the one who gave the order to the Jewish army to shoot Jews out of the West Bank. As a pause, and Paris said, I'm not. If it was too late then, in 1970, when there were only about 70 to 80,000 illegal Jewish settlers, for God's sake, how much is it too late today when there are 600,000 illegal settlers and their number rising on an almost daily basis? Think about that. I know, it's shocking, isn't it? It's like, and also the uh, incredibly systematic uh, ad, uh, death by administrative cuts, except that there it's... Uh, uh, in in uh, the walls that they put up and uh, people are not being able to go to uh, hospital when they're deadly ill and, and things of this nature. It's it's just uh, a travesty, isn't it? Well, it, it, it's very simple, basically. Zionism has never been, is not today, and never will be interested in peace on any terms that Palestinians can accept. Uh, I mean, that, that is the, the, the bottom line. Zionism has always hoped that they could make life hell enough for the occupied and oppressed Palestinians so they would pack up their bags and leave. Well, that isn't going to happen. Although some are now leaving, particularly the really educated ones, most of them are not going to leave. So my fear, Annie, is the day is coming when Israel will resort to a final round of ethnic cleansing. I fear that is the beginning of the end of the story at some point in the future. But that's not the total end. Because if that happens, I think the world will once again turn against the Jews. And we will have something which in shorthand terms you could call Holocaust too. I fear that's the way that we're heading. And the reason why I put five years in, in, into researching and writing my book, well, I'm driven by two motivations, Andy. One, justice for the Palestinians for its own sake. I'm a man of justice. I'd also like to stop Holocaust too. The problem is Zionism needs anti-Semitism. It's what it uses to justify everything it's doing. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, when uh, the Prime Minister who was assassinated by a uh, extreme uh, Zionist uh, was just about to come up with a, a peace arrangement. Uh, it, it was one of their own that killed him. Yes, well, he, he knew, the, the Goku knew exactly what he was doing. He was killing the peace process. Now, there are a lot of writers and other so-called experts who, who think that Rabin wasn't serious about peace. I think he was serious enough to have got something possibly going with Arafat. So uh, I, I think Robin's death actually uh, possibly was the final nail in the coffin of any hope for peace. I think so too. I was quite shocked. Uh, I remember thinking, I imagined it was going to happen before it happened. And that's why I was particularly shocked that that was what was going to happen. My subconscious told me that this, that would be the end. It's quite extraordinary to me that, uh, uh, the uh, as you point out, that... Uh, Western democracies purport to uh, be 
I know that it, you know, it might seem, you know, uh, shallow to say it, but they they purport to be uh, looking to uh, protect, uh, create a just world. But everything that's happening to the Palestinians is the complete opposite to what one would hope for a just world. Yeah, but you see, there's a, there's a word you use which I always challenge. We literally talk about Western democracy. In my view, Annie. There is no democracy anywhere in the world, least of all America, where what parties of democracy is for sale to the highest lobby bidders. You can't have democracy. Actually, we, we, we have the, the scaffolding, if you like, of democracy, but we don't have the substance. For real democracy to exist, the citizens of nations, the voters, have to be informed enough about critical issues to call and hold their governments to account, not just every four or five years from the election, but all the time. Can you name me one country anywhere in the bloody world where the average citizens are informed enough on critical issues to do that? No, and uh, I guess that uh, the Australian government uh, turning Basim Tamimi's uh, visa down is an indication of uh, how little flexibility there really is. Yeah, well, I, I tell you what really, really saddens me. I truly believe, I, I make enemies by saying what I'm about to say, I truly believe that, generally speaking, the Jews are the intellectual elite of the Western world. I also believe and know that the Palestinians are by far the intellectual elite of the Arab world. Now, together in peace and partnership, those two peoples could change the region for the better and give new hope and inspiration to the world. But sadly, it isn't going to happen. Well, I guess that ultimately speaking, that the, uh, the illegal settlements uh, are going to continue and uh, the uh, attacks on Palestinians don't seem to be uh, easing up any time soon. No, well, as I said previously, Annie, I fear that we are on course for a final Zionist ethnic cleansing of Palestine. I, I, I can't see any other alternatives because the vast majority of Israelis, shall we say 90%, 95%, are totally, absolutely brainwashed. That's the problem with, with, with Jews in Israel. And there's another very big problem for the Jews of the world. Increasingly, some of them are becoming critical of Israel, but they won't speak out in large enough numbers because deep down they fear the day will come when there will be something like Holocaust too. So they think they must say nothing and do nothing to put Israel at risk because it's their insurance policy, their refuge of last resort. And that's one of the reasons, I think the main reason, why even most Jews of the world who don't like what Israel is won't speak out. Now, let's look at Israel as it is um, and the Zionist experiment, imperialist nature of the uh, state of Israel. They're, they're actively creating a um, notion that, well, they started off the notion that actually it's their homeland because that's where they came from 2,000 years ago. Well, that, of course, is nonsense. It's yeah. not their homeland. 
Right, and and I noticed that in archaeological digs and information these days, uh, areas that would have been Palestinian are now being called uh, Israeli finds. You know, they've been identified with mm. them. I find that really interesting. Well, I mean, let's just pick up on what you said about it. Is true that they that one of their big claims and one of their big lies is that uh, Palestine that became Israel is the Jewish homeland. You know, the truth is that the vast majority, if not all Jews, who went and still go uh, to Israel in answer to Zionism's call, they're from many, many different homelands. They were alien uh, people arriving. Israel simply is not uh, the Jewish homeland. It's a nonsense. But, but it's part of creating a n- national myth, isn't it? Yeah, but you see, what the Zionist propaganda people have done, they, they, they've done very well. They've learned from Joseph Goebbels, Hitler's propaganda chief. The bigger the lie you tell, and the more often you tell it, the more likely it is that it will be believed. I mean, the sad fact is that Zionism's version of the history of the making and sustaining of the conflict, though it's a propaganda lie, all of it, or almost all of it, that is the basis of Judeo-Christian uh, history. Ah, uh, I mean, right. it's, it's very, very sad. I mean, I wrote my book to offer a second uh, version of history, if you like. Mm. Yeah. What, what's the name of your book? And uh, we'll make sure that our listeners uh, tap into it. It's called Zionism, the Real Enemy of the Jews. And who's the publisher? Oh, well, the, the latest edition of the American, it, it's now being published in Germany and uh, Italy and other places, um, but the, the best uh, copy of it is the American edition, which is in three volumes. It's very easy to read. In fact, uh, I, I get messages from all over the world now from people telling me that it is easy to read. And there was one... Um, anti-Zionist uh, rabbi in, in the UK who, whom I know well and he called me one morning and he said, Alan, you're the cause of me not sleeping. I said, why is that? He said, well, I've got your book on my bedside intending to read a few minutes every night, but I can't put it down. It really is easy to read because it's written in a, in a conversational style. It's not academic. It's, it's just me talking to my readers and from time to time I, I ask them to think about questions as we go through the next you know, few chapters. But it's a complete rewrite, Annie, of the whole history of the making and sustaining of the conflict. Okay, thank you very much for giving me some time. Okay, Annie, you take care. Bye. Hi, I'm Stuart. Hi, I'm Marita. We are the Orb Weavers, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital radio. And streaming at 3cr.org.au. You're on 3CR, Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim, and uh, we just had an interview there uh, that Annie did with... um, Ellen Hart. Ellen Hart. And we should say that... uh, Basim Tamimi will not be silenced, even though he has not been able to get into the country. So we will be speaking at Marxism. He just won't be there in corporeal, sort of embodied form. That's right. It's it's uh, 
It's on at 11.30. It's the 11.30 a.m. session, and it's in the Aqua Room. And, uh, in fact, there's still tickets available to go to Marxist uh, 2017. It's down at the VCA. Uh, there's lots of different uh, sessions. Very interesting. And it's on on Sunday as well. So there's, uh, you know, on competing with uh, Basim Tamimi, uh, things like the indigenous section, uh, uh, um, servant or slave. Uh, then there's uh, uh, Russian Revolution 101, the defeat of the Russian Revolution, the real story. Moves on to crisis or stasis, the world economic economy today. Uh, current affairs issues, how should the left respond to the rights free speech crusade? It just goes on and on and on. That's only 11.30am and uh, you have lots of different uh, sessions that you can uh, tap into. Really, really interesting, I'll have to say. I I went yesterday, went to the opening night. I'm going to go today. Fantastic uh, things to... to, uh, In fact, I'm really keen to hear the... um, There's going to be a reading, a a, a play reading for um, at... 8.45 8.45 uh, tonight and it's uh, the play reading based on a play about refugees by Samara Salbawi. Now she's just fantastic. Well, you she, said you've heard her speak before. Oh yeah, yeah, she's fantastic. She is genuinely a uh, riveting uh, performer and writer. Uh, so uh, if you get a chance, it's at the Grant Theatre tonight at 8.45. You know. Uh, anyway, uh, it's uh, something like fifteen dollars for a day at uh, the Marxist conference. Uh, best uh, entertainment in uh, Melbourne during the Easter holiday break is my view. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we're come, we've come to the end of the show. And uh, what did we have on the show? We had lots of things on the show today. We had uh, David Stevens, which was the honest history. Book. Of book of Australia, <laughs> I, I was I, I kept rearranging it in my head, <laughs> but it is. It's called the Honest Hist- uh, History Book, and it's. Uh, I know not everybody is linked online, but uh, it's an online project uh, that was created in response to the inflated ANZAC uh, baby that was produced in 1980. I thought it was going to die, but it didn't. Yeah, Uh, that's Mm. right. It was revived. And we had Donald Sutherland. Uh, We were talking about the modern awards system. Yeah, and what awards are. That was really fascinating. I found that really interesting. Yeah, so that was just part one, I think. That's right. (laughs) And uh, then we had Kevin live. Yeah, that was pretty fabulous. Yeah, and then we finished with Alan Hart. And uh, coming up next is uh, Asia Pacific Currents. And they're going to have some excerpts, I, I believe. I hope I'm not being too peremptory, but I think they're going to have some excerpts from Marxist uh, 2017 because there's some great uh, speakers, lots of different speakers. Before we do let go, though, I might uh, remind you about something. CR presents a great night of entertainment at Bella Union, Thursday the 27th of April. Jonathan Alley will MC a stellar lineup, including 3CR DJs Kate and Susie spinning tracks for a lazy Thursday night. Fiona Scott Norman's One Woman Show, The Needle and the Damage Done. Ian McFarlane's book launch of the Encyclopedia of Australian Rock and Pop Music. And an unleashed version of Super Flutie's Free Association radio show 
with Clem Basto, Casey Bonetto, Scott Edgar and Christos Chorkas. That's Saturday, the 27th of... Thursday, the 27th of April, Bella Union at Trades Hall. Doors open at 6.30. For tickets, go to bellaunion.com.au or at the door if not sold out. This is a 3CR benefit. So see you there. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.